awake and ready to go now? All right, well, have a seat then. You're going to be doing some aerobics this morning. But if you got a Bible, uh, let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, we're going to look at this amazing passage where Isaiah relates his prophetic call. And God gives him uh, something of a glimpse into heaven, and he reveals himself uh, to him. And, I mean, there's a lot that can be said about this. I'm just going to teach in short little uh, snippets and just really focus on worship. And, and the first truth that I want you to see about worship this morning is that worship involves an accurate understanding of and proper response to who God is. Worship involves an accurate understanding of and a proper response to who God is. Notice what it says here. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, which would have been around 739 uh, B.C., and he had been a king uh, ruling there for about 52 years before he died with leprosy. And for most of that time, he had been a good and a godly king. So this would have been a blow. Uh, this would have been very, very difficult uh, for them. And so uh, that's kind of the context, the background of it. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. But here's the thing that we need to know, and this is just amazing to me. If you go to John chapter 12, verse 41, what, is, what John says there is he speaks of Isaiah uh, seeing Jesus in his glory. And so that's who he's seeing here. Jesus is the visible manifestation uh, of God. And, and so he, he says, uh, the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled uh, the temple. And so, uh, you know, I'm sure there's some metaphors here, but this is just something, you know, it's magnificent. It, you know, the, you think about a wedding, you think about, like, you've seen, like, uh, like a royal wedding, and think about how long the train of the gown was, and, uh, you know, it's just kind of opulent, and uh, there's probably something along those lines here. Uh, it says, above it stood seraphim. Uh, which are these angelic creatures. didn't have two wings, they had six wings. And you know, everything that God creates, He creates it with design and with purpose. He, he made us the way that we are for a reason, and He made these angels the way that they are. And so they had two wings to cover their face, uh, two to cover their feet, and with two to fly. Why? can't fully answer that, but uh, I'll kind of give a thought, at least about with the wings to cover his face later. So just hold on to that. And he said, one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. When you ask the average person who God is, what's the normal answer? What's the characteristic of God that people usually talk about the most? Love. Like if you say, who, who is God and what's God like, people would say God is love. Look what the Bible says that God is love. 
But I don't think that love is the defining characteristic of God. I think we see who God is ultimately in, in, in these verses. And, and, and we see that God is the sovereign king who is holy and who's glorious. I believe the defining characteristic of God is the holiness of God because that's what makes his love and everything else about him what it is. And then the glory of God is the outward manifestation of all those inward perfections. But we see here that even in a bad, difficult time, that Jesus is on his throne. We need to hear that today. Do we believe that Jesus is in control? You know, we've, we've spent two years dealing with COVID. You know, we uh, are, wake up to the news every day and, you know, wonder if what's going on in the Ukraine could escalate into World War III. And there's scenarios by which that is a possibility. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but there are scenarios that make that a possibility. And, and when we look around, you know, we get depressed over things in the world. But at some point, I think we need to stop looking around and do what Isaiah did and look up. And, and to see that Jesus is high and lifted up, that he's on his throne, that he's king of kings and lord of lords. Do we believe that he is the sovereign ruler, that he is the one who's ultimately in control? And I would say this, if he's not in control, there's no reason to worship him. Listen, I understand the sovereignty of God can bring a lot of questions, like, you know, if God's in control, why are things the way they are? But if God's not in control, then to me, that's just reason for despair. Because then everything really is spinning out of control. There is no ultimate plan or purpose for it all. When the king, when the earthly king died, the heavenly king was still on his throne, and he still is today. Look up, see him for who he really is, and who is he really? Well, the angels say that he's holy. Now, I want you to, to think about something here. You've got these angelic beings, and, and they're responding to one another, and you know they have these different sets of wings, but they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. And there's a significance of that in Hebrew that we may not get in English. In English, we have something called the comparative and the superlative. You know, we, we would say, like, good, better, best. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, we got a couple of judges of true life. Uh, Will was here in the first service, so I, I'll just use this again. Uh, you, I can say, Will Roach is a good judge, Dwayne Sloan's a better judge, and Judge Judy's the best judge. Like, <laughs> that that would be, I'm kidding, but that, that would be like how we would say it in, in, in English. Uh, you know what I'm saying? It, it's like I, I could say uh, Preston's a wise elder, Rusty's a wiser elder, and Roger's the wisest elder, so, something like that. Um, but in, in Hebrew, they don't have the comparative and the superlative, so they use repetition. And so it's not just saying God is holy. Not just God is holy, holy, but God is holy, holy, holy. That's the superlative. That's the best. That's the most. He's saying God is holy to the nth degree. 
God is completely other than us. God is separate from us. God is above us. God is pure. He's perfect. He's sinless. He's separate from sin. This is who he is. He's perfect, and and he's righteous, and this defines everything else about him. His wrath is holy. His justice is holy. His love is holy. His grace is holy. His mercy is holy. He's perfect in all of his ways, and this is the foundation for our faith and our worship. I mean, the holiness of God leads to the fear of God. It leads to us not taking sin lightly. But at the end of the day, you can't understand the gospel without understanding the holiness of God. And we'll get to that in this message. Why, if, If God's not holy and sin's not terrible, why else would have Jesus died on the cross? So God is holy. But then it says here, the whole earth is full of his glory. God is glorious. He's magnificent. He's beautiful. Heaven is lit by the glory of God. And so then worship, this is why Psalm 29.2 says what it says. Worship is seeing God for who he is. Seeing his greatness, his holiness, his holiness, his glory. Seeing that he's the sovereign king, the Lord over all. In response, giving him the glory that's due to his name. Acknowledging, ascribing greatness to him, praising him, thanking him, expressing our love and our devotion to him. And there's different ways we can do that, but one of the ways the Bible tells us to do it is to sing. All right, have a seat again if you would, and let's look back in Isaiah chapter 6. And I want us to see Isaiah's response to what he saw because, again, this is going to uh, teach us something about worship. And it teaches us that worship involves the conviction of and confession of sin. Uh, notice what Isaiah says in verse 5. I mean, he, he, he saw this, he got this glimpse into heaven and uh, this picture of Jesus. And he wasn't like, awesome, this is cool. This is fantastic. This is, he's like, woe is me. And, you know, the word woe, uh, you know, we say woe, like, you know, stop, hang on, that kind of thing. But in, in this sense, it basically means judgment. And this was part of his job, his calling as a prophet of God, was to pronounce God's judgment. He had been pronouncing it on other people, but now he pronounces it on himself. And so, notice this, him seeing God did not make him feel better about himself. I don't want you to miss this. I think a lot of people, the reason they come to church is to feel better about themselves. The purpose of worship is to give God the glory that's due his name. And to see ourselves... In light of not who we are, but as who we are in Christ. Because he says, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Listen, if you leave church feeling better, it should be because you've seen Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you. And, and so the idea here is that, um, you know, he says, I'm undone. And the idea of undone would be, man, I'm like I'm falling apart. And you may feel that way sometimes. We probably all feel that way sometimes. We ought to feel that way because that is the effect of sin in our lives. Sin messes us up, but even more than that, he's just saying, in light of the holiness of God, I have no goodness of my own to proclaim. Now think about it. He might have been the holiest man compared to other people in the nation of Israel. I mean, he was the prophet. I mean, the book of Isaiah is pretty amazing. I would think he was a, he was a godly man, but he didn't have any righteousness of his own. That's what he's saying. Uh, that's why he wrote later in the book of Isaiah that my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We can't see the holiness of God and think, hey, me and God are cool. You know, Jesus, yeah, he's my homeboy. We're good. We, we got it together. us, how many times has people say, Lisa, I'm not perfect? What a revelation, right? I mean, your spouse has never been like, that's shocking to me. I never, wow, I thought you were. But we, we, we say that as an excuse, but we miss that actually is the issue. We're not perfect. You see, I, I think when we understand this passage, we can understand Romans 3.23 that says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Based on the fact that God is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory, I don't measure up. I've sinned. I fall short of the standard of the perfection of Jesus Christ, and my sins separate me from God. It doesn't matter how I compare to anybody else. And, and so when we see who God is, that's what prepares us to receive the gospel but for us as Christians, we need to understand, listen, we meet Jesus, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We're perfected forever by the blood of Jesus. In our position in Christ, we are justified. God put, holds our sins against us no more. He's placed them as far away from us as the east is from the west. But with our fellowship with God, if we're really going to worship God, if we're going to be filled with the Spirit, it's going to be great for the Lord. It's important for us to recognize and to confess our sins, not to stay so, but to stay in fellowship with God. Right? It's like if, if I'm hateful to my wife, we don't stop being married, but it would be advisable for our fellowship if I apologize to her. Right? If your kid smarts off to you, they don't cease being your child, even though occasionally you might wish that, uh, you know, in that moment, like, can, you know, can I, do, can I just send this child away somewhere? The fellowship's not real good, right? And like if one minute your kid says whatever, you know, smarts off to you, you don't want them asking for something the next minute, right? And you probably don't want to even want them like buttering you up and saying something nice to you. You want them to own what they did. And in some rough sense, that's a picture of what we're talking about when we talk about confessing our sins. Before we ask God for something, we need to ask for forgiveness. As a part of worshiping God, we need to acknowledge our sinfulness. But the great promise of Scripture is that if we confess our sins, that He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, it means if we agree with God that he's both faithful and just. How can he be faithful and just to cleanse us from all sin? Because of the covenant that he's made with us in Jesus Christ and all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. And the blood of Jesus Christ is continually cleansing us from all sin. So we can confess and repent of sin based on the cross. Again, not to stay saved, but to stay in fellowship with the Lord and to be filled with the Spirit. So I want to encourage us. Let's just bow together for a minute. We're going to sing again in a second. I just encourage you to take a minute and to pray the prayer that the psalmist prayed. Lord, search my heart. You know, what is it in our lives that would hinder our fellowship with you, Lord, that would keep us from being filled with the Spirit, that would keep us from truly worshiping Him in spirit and in truth? It could be thoughts, it could be words, it could be actions. It can be not doing things that God has told us to do. What is it today we need to ask the Lord to forgive us of? What is it we need to surrender to Him, to repent of, to ask for His grace and His strength to change? You know, it could be if you feel like you're struggling in your Christian walk, this could be the issue that there's sin you're hanging on to. That you need God to cleanse you. Pray for every child of yours that participated in this. Lord, I pray that you would convict us, that you would show us things in our lives that are displeasing to you. Lord, I ask you to help us to repent. Lord, I ask you to help us to not wallow in guilt or to try to do penance, but to bring our sins to the cross and the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we are secure in you, that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ, that the blood of Jesus is continually cleansing us from all sin, that you have adopted us, that you have become our father and made us your children, and that you've given us your spirit as the deposit until that day who is never going to be taken away uh, from us. And we thank you that you're able to present us spotless before the throne of your glory, that no one can ever pluck us out of your hand. But I pray that between now and then, that you would help us to live daily in repentance. Lord, to not be puffed up, but to acknowledge our sinfulness and our dependence upon you. And while remembering that we are justified, to also know that we have feet of clay, and that we have unclean lips, and that on our own we have no righteousness. So, Lord, we ask you to forgive us and to cleanse us, to fill us with your spirit. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercies that are new every day. Let's try to kind of bring these first two points uh, together in, in the next couple of verses and want us to see that worship, and this would clearly be the heart of worship, that worship involves Christ's sacrifice for us and the cleansing of sin that that brings. Um, 
Look what he says here. He says in verses 6 and 7, and, and of course, you know, this is symbolic, it's metaphorical, ultimately fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. But he says, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth uh, with it, and what did he just said about his mouth? Unclean. And said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Now, I want you to think about it in this sense. Remember, I, I talked earlier about the seraphim, and they've got these three sets of wings instead of just one wing. One set, you know, they're one they're flying with, they're flying with, one they're covering their feet with, but one they're covering their face with. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. And again, God, when He creates, He does it with design and purpose and intent, always. There was a reason that these angels had these three sets of wings. There, there was a reason that uh, these angels were covering their face. Now think about it. These angels who are singing holy, holy, holy could not look on the glory of God without their face covered. So how are we, as sinful people, ever going to enter into the presence of God? You know, we read a passage in Revelation 7 last week that pictured not just angels around the throne, it pictures us around the throne worshiping Jesus. How could this ever be if we're so sinful? Well, see, that's because at the cross, the holiness of God and the mercy of God met one another. You see, on the cross, God accomplished justice. His wrath was poured out on the sins of the world. But in His love and His grace, it was poured out on His Son instead of us, where when we trust Jesus, the wrath of God that is deserved by us because we're sinners and God is holy is diverted from us. It was propitiated. It was absorbed by Jesus where there's no more wrath. There's no more judgment. There's no condemnation for us. There's grace and there's love. That's the gospel. God is holy, we're sinful, but Jesus atones for our sins. The one here who is holy, 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 he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 The holy, eternal, perfect, glorious Son of God came to earth as a man. He divested himself of this outward display of his glory. He lived as one of us, except he never sinned. But then he died the death that we deserved in our place. And you see, on the cross, and this is why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting from the 22nd Psalm. You see, God the Father did not treat Jesus like the perfect Son of God. He treated him like he was one of us bearing our sins as our representative. And the Bible says that Jesus, 1 Peter 3.18, that Jesus died, the just for the unjust, or the righteous for the unrighteous, suffering for our sins, that he might bring us to God. 
He was forsaken so that we could be accepted. This is why the Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What can I, as a sinful man, bring to an infinitely holy God? My sins have separated me from Him. I can never stand in His presence. I'd be obliterated in a moment. Except for the fact that I've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and I stand in Christ, clothed in His righteousness. That's how we can come into the presence of God. And so, my question for you would be, if you're not a Christian, why are you trying to save yourself? You know you're not perfect. You know you're a sinner. Just admit it and humble yourself and stop trying to earn salvation and accept what Jesus has already done. Turn from your sin and turn to Him, trusting in His sacrifice, trusting in His perfect payment, His death, burial, and resurrection for you. And I would encourage you as we sing and celebrate communion in the next few moments to do what the Bible says and call on the name of the Lord. Ask for forgiveness of your sin. Surrender your life to Him. Entrust yourself to this great King. But if we are Christians, recognize Galatians 6.14, we boast in the cross. That's worship. Boasting in the cross because we have nothing to offer. But yet we can know God and be forgiven and have eternal life because of what Jesus has done for us. And he did that by his body being broken and his blood being spilled. And that's what we remember and commemorate and celebrate as we take communion. The, the, the proper response to Christ is us surrendering, a proper response to God, the proper act of worship, is us, us surrendering our lives to the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 8. He says, so God's revealed himself. He's been convicted of his sin. He's been cleansed. And then he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who, who will go for us? Which is an interesting question because it has the singular and the plural in the same sentence, which I think the way to understand that is the Trinity. God is one, but three persons at the, at the same time. Uh, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And his response was, here am I, send me. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you see that the assignment that God was giving him was not an easy one. It was not a glamorous one. He wasn't about to go like plant a megachurch or something like that. Basically, uh, God said to him, I want you to go. They're not really going to listen to you, but go anyway. Now, Isaiah's like, okay, Lord, I'm yours. Here am I. Just send me whatever you say, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do. I think the New Testament parallel to this is probably Romans 12.1, where Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And, and the mercies of God in this context in Romans chapter 12 would be, I think, a summation, a short little phrase that encompasses everything he's already talked about in Romans. And he's saying the mercies of God is everything I've done for you in Christ through the cross. Based on that, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. In other words, give yourself to me. Surrender to me. He says, this is holy, acceptable, God. 
the last phrase, which is the reasonable service. It's how the New King James translates it. It could literally just as easily be translated, which is your logical act of worship. In the Old Testament, their worship involved sacrifices. The New Testament sacrifice of worship is us sacrificing, surrendering ourselves, giving ourselves to the Lord. Here I am, send me. God's worthy of our lives, of our surrender, not of of us just playing around, but us saying, Jesus, you're Lord. Take my life and make it what you want it to be. You see, really, worship, real worship, is how we live our lives day in and day out. I mean, Sunday should just be the overflow of us worshiping with our lips and our lives through the week. That's how God wants us to be. And you see, the reality is everybody's a worshiper. It's just a question of what we're worshiping. I believe the Bible teaches us that whatever we give the highest devotion and sacrifice and honor and glory and dedication to, that's what we're worshiping. Is that Jesus or is that other stuff? Let me close with this illustration and then kind of sing a final song of response. But, you know, when when John talks about Uganda, he always asks a question. What's the question he always asks? What's what's BPCB thinking, okay? So I'm not going to ask you that question today. Uh, but I'm going to ask you a question related to our ministry in Honduras. And in the first service, nobody knew the answer. It's not really something we've talked about a whole lot before. I would have thought a handful of people would have known, and I bet a handful of people will know in this service. But it, it, but did anybody know, does anybody know who Larry and Jean Ellen are? If you do, raise your hand. Uh, the, the professional missionaries know. I knew they would know. Anybody else know who Larry and Jean Ellen are? Well, let me tell you about them. And uh, we don't know them uh, because, I mean, we've never interacted with them in Honduras, but they're really foundational to our ministry in Honduras. So Larry and Jean Elliott were uh, International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention missionaries, like Philip Teresa and their family were in Africa. Uh, they were that in Honduras and in Iraq. They were in Honduras for over 20 years, they're really legends in Honduras. I thought a few people who have been to Honduras might have had uh, you know, conversation with somebody about them. But when, when they uh, left Honduras, there were 12 churches they had been a part of planting, 92 mission points, of which I'm sure some of those ended up actually becoming churches. And uh, they had drilled over 80 water wells for people who didn't have clean drinking water. And um, after they left Honduras, they went to Iraq, and um, they were exploring sites that needed well drilling in Iraq as part of uh, our mission uh, there. And one night, they were uh, driving on kind of a deserted road uh, with uh, some other missionaries, and that night, they went to heaven because they were done running. Uh, four of the five people in the car, four, four missionaries were killed, uh, Larry and Jean being two of them. Uh, the wife of uh, one of the other missionaries survived 
and I had, I had to have a bunch of surgeries, and it was a very long, uh, drawn-out recovery, uh, but, but she did uh, survive. But the, here are some things that either they said or were said at the end of the week. Quote, they loved the gospel and the souls of lost men and women more than themselves. The interim pastor of the church where the memorial service was at said, there's a beautiful tapestry of people in Honduras that have been impacted by the lives of Larry and Jean Elliott. People wanted to follow them. I wanted to follow them because they followed Jesus with a wholehearted passion. There is fruit to a life that is wholly yielded to God. This was an email that Jean wrote from Iraq shortly before they were killed. She said, quote, we are happy to be here in Iraq and our calling has been confirmed. This is a very special time for us and God is so real. No matter what happens, we are in his hands and we know that we're, that, uh, and we know that we are where we should be. He said around that same time, uh, Larry uh, did that I love this project. This is what I've lived my life for. And at the memorial, Gary Rankin, who was the president of the International Mission Board at that time, uh, said this. He, he said the Elliots went to Honduras and then to Iraq because they saw people living without hope. And quote, it was worth giving their lives for them. They were led to go to the place of greatest need, of greatest urgency, a place that had been held in bondage for generations. The prospect of the gospel being planted drove them to give their lives with no concern for their own comforts or their safety, that Jesus Christ might be glorified among the people. And then he concluded with this. Years ago, Larry and Jean died to self. They lived for the needs of others and the glory of God. Larry and Jean discovered long ago there was a cause worth living for and a cause worth dying for. Jesus said, we'll keep our lives and we'll lose our lives. For when we die, we live for Christ. Here I am, send me. Is he worthy of our lives? He's the sovereign king who is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory, yet he laid aside that glory and he suffered and died for us so that we could know him. He's absolutely worthy of any and everything we could give him and so much more. Do we really believe that? Are we really worshiping him? Because if we're really worshiping him, it's not just showing up at church to do our religious duty. It's living our lives for his honor and glory every day. And the reality is this. Are we going to just exist? Or are we really going to live? Are we living for something that's going to outlive us? And when we die, will we exchange our lives for Christ? And all that.